views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Welcome to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today. You know, small businesses, they have as many origin stories as superhero movies. More, actually. And here is mine. I got fired. That is really hard for me to say. Actually, it used to be a lot harder for me to say out loud. But yeah, I had applied to be the new editor-in-chief of Money Magazine when my mentor, the guy who hired me, left. And I didn't get it. The guy who did, who actually wanted to be the person to represent the magazine on television, fired me. My solace was that his wish to be the one on TV did not come to fruition, but that is another story. I was a woman getting divorced, turning 40, who knew that half the responsibility to put my two kids through college, not to mention put a roof over their head, was mine. And so I really carefully parsed my next move. I had a side gig since well before side gigs were a thing. When I was an editorial assistant at Working Woman Magazine, I taught SATs on the side. It paid better than my day job. And I never really stopped with the side gig thing. Being on the Today Show opened the door to speeches and consulting and books and radio and other gigs that had long been supplementing my magazine income. But when it became clear that it was going to be tough to recreate my day magazine job at another publication, I just decided that I would try to make my gigs my actual business, which sounds really cavalier. It, it was and it wasn't that easy. I did not like the idea that I was the one responsible for the retirement plan and the health plan for me and my family. And when I hired an assistant, I really didn't like the idea that her livelihood was now on my shoulders. And then a few years in, she got pregnant and I had a big decision to make. What kind of an employer was I going to be? I thought about the health insurance and the maternity leave that I'd experienced courtesy of a large corporation, and I decided, even though there were just three of us at that point, that I wanted that for her. And that was the point that we became, in my mind at least, a real company. But it has been a slog. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It took me a decade to get from two employees to five. A year ago, we were six. Today at my company, hermoney.com, I have 12. 
and we're growing. I have confidence that the revenues I had in one year will be more replicable in the next. I have a COO by my side who understands me and vice versa. And he says when he looks at our capabilities that he thinks we're a case of one plus one equals three. And I've decided that I'm going to believe him. When people say, tell us about your entrepreneurial journey, the word that comes to me is reluctant. Despite the fact that I am happy to be here, I was reluctant going in. And part of the reason for that, Andy, is that I worked many, many years to build a secure financial foundation. And I want to be sure that what I do with the business doesn't sabotage that. Andy Smith, Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, is my co-host today. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Please tell me that I am not alone in this reluctance. You are not alone in this reluctance. I mean, it's an amazing story, right? And it's every small business owner has that unique kind of origin story. And so I've got a lot of questions, you know, for that. And I won't put you on the spot. I won't hijack this as as, as much as I can. But um, you had a very unique or um, a very specialized reason for starting down this path. Right. It's not like, hey, I want to do something else. I want to do something in addition. It's holy smokes, this happened. Now what? Right. And so that first year you were doing certain things maybe that you weren't planning on at the very beginning. Talk about what years two and three were like compared to year one. Year one was probably what? How just getting wheels in motion, putting everything together, but talk about what happened maybe not here towards the end, but just after that first year. After the first year, the first year was kind of, I had a couple of contracts. I knew that I was going to be able to maybe build on them and expand on them. And as long as I was able to do that, I was going to be okay. Year two and three was, okay, now we have a business. Should we try to grow it? Right. How should we try to grow it? And I, I mentioned now I've gone in the last year from six employees to 12. This was not my first time at trying to grow. I had um, in the past brought on people that I thought might sort of fill a COO type of a role, and it didn't work. Okay. Um, and a lot of stopping and starting and thinking about what business are we in? And I I kind of started in a way that I was my product. That's not very scalable. Right. Um, and so it took until this latest iteration to figure out, okay, how do you scale a person? In terms of, you know, you went, you were going down, you, you were thinking that one thing was going to happen, how to scale, how to build on, and do we, you know, how do we add employees? How do we build this, this, this kind of company? There were obviously some early successes. There were some, some early wins where you thought, you know, hey, this is, this is totally going to work. There were also probably some, some times where you were staring at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning thinking, what in the heck did I just do? How do you find those successes and those failures changing over time now that you have that experience, now that you have that kind of, um, you know, background with what you're doing? Do you still think about things in those same terms 
or how, <laughs> how, how, how has that changed? So I have a new principle in my business this year um, that we're calling the Nancy Reagan principle um, because she's the one who said, just say no. Right. Right. And, and that's, that for me has been the challenge and I think the transformation. When you're a small business and somebody offers you money in order to do something for them, at least if you're me, you just say yes, right? right? And you you think about, do I have capacity to you do You try this? to pause and act cool about it. And then you absolutely say yes. You just, you know, you're not saying yes right when it comes out I, of their mouth. You know? I, no, I yeah. said a lot of yes right yeah. when it came out of their yeah. mouth, right? You want this? Oh, great. I can I can deliver right. this. I can actually do this. This is in my skill set without stopping to think about, should I be doing this? What is it going to cost me to do this? What am I saying no to by saying yes to this? Who am I going to have to bring on in order to do these things? How much time is it going to take? I mean, all of the questions that when you are building a business strategically, you do stop to think about, you know, is this a business that we want to be in? I, I remember reading stories about businesses that if, you know, if this is not contributing to our revenue in a major way, we're not going to do it. And and to me, any contribution to revenue in those early years was like, hell yeah, I'm going to do this because I'm not sure it's going to be there tomorrow. Well, you, you talked about two interesting things. First of all, you talked about having a business plan and you talked about oh, yeah. thinking strategically, <laughs> business right? Plan. Well, I, mean, I want to talk about that later because, you know, again, this is such an amazing story. It's a very unique story to you. And Every small business owner has a, a very unique kind of origin story for that. And in, if, if I can put small business into context, what, like 99% of all businesses in the United States are small businesses, yeah. right? Um, they, they create two-thirds of the new jobs. They deliver, you know, a ton of, um, you know, U.S. GDP. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of, them, of people out there doing this. Most of them are one person, right? right? I mean, 81, 80, 81 percent of them don't have any employees. It's them. They are their business. And and I think sometimes when you are your business, you don't actually think about all of these other decisions. You, you think about, I'm going to keep the money coming in. I did a radio show years ago for Oprah on, on the Oprah and Friends Network, and we had a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners on the show, big business owners, actually, they had become over time. I asked all of them two questions. How much did you start your business with? The answer across the board was $5,000. Spanx was started with $5,000. And I asked them if they had a business plan, and they all laughed at me. And I didn't have one either. Yeah. I have one now. I have goals now, I have revenue goals now, and I have growth goals now, and I have a framework now, but I didn't going in. And I think it's kind of unusual to do the MBA by the book business plan. And that's what I want to talk about. So I'm going to kind of put you on the spot um, because there are definite things that I think people should should understand or at least be aware of as they're starting to go through this whole entrepreneurial, do I want to do something? Do I want to do something different sort of thing with their lives? Because a lot of, a lot of people that I talk with in the, in the office, um, they may know that they don't want to stop working 
but they just want to do something else yep. or do something different. Or they're not finding some sort of completion in their day-to-day. And so we'll talk about side hustles later. We'll talk about these kind of ancillary businesses. But when you started your small business, right, there's different things. You talk about MBA by the book, what we're supposed to do, right? One of the first things that people talk about is, you know, conduct some market research. Yep. Did you do any market research? I had done my market research. And look, I don't want to set up this idea that I got fired and started a business the very next day. I had a business, right? I just formalized it. And so I was very fortunate. I didn't have to worry about keeping the lights on, okay? I was already making more money than my salary from my side hustles for many years before I went full side hustle. And I know that's very unusual. So I don't want people listening to think, oh my God, she started from zero because that would be totally disingenuous. Make sure that you have the other vine to hold on to. Well, I, yeah, you I, mean, I, always, vine I don't on. think you quit your day job. Yeah. I really, really don't think that you, if, if you want to start a business that you haven't tested you got to test it. You have to test it to see, A, if you like it, but you also have to test it to see if it's a business or a hobby. Um, When we talk about the fact that more than half of all businesses fail in the first year, it's because they're hobbies and people didn't bother to do the research to see if there was actually enough there to live on. Or it was because, hey, I really like doing this, or I think I'm a really good insert name of hobby right? I'm a good baker. I'm a good woodworker. I'm a good whatever. Well, just because you're good with certain skills doesn't mean that you're necessarily good in business and you can't put together cash flow or you can't figure out how to advertise or let people know what you're doing because the bigger problem is you could be the best baker in the whole world, but if nobody knows that you are a baker or where you are or what you sell, then it's it's a completely different issue. And it's interesting that you pick baker because I would very much like to be a baker at some point in my life. I I went to cooking school. I've had a sourdough starter since way before they were cool. Um, But I know enough to know that if I really decided that I was going to open a bakery, I would spend a couple of months actually shadowing a baker to see if I liked spending 12 hours a day coated in flour. It's not... you may think that because you love this so much, this should be something that you do with all your time. But the reason that you love it so much may be because you don't do it all the time. Right. So we talked about kind of having some idea, you know, testing it. We talked about this on paper, maybe have a business plan. You probably have a business plan formalized down the road. One of the things that I want to ask you about is the funding aspect. When people come in, when we're talking and I talk about what happens after retirement, what do you want to do? Some people, they know that they just want to stop doing everything, right? They're not just going to sit in front of the TV, but they don't want to do something else. A lot of people that I talk to, they know that they want to stop doing what they're doing, but they can't sit still. They have to stay busy. So we talk about, okay, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? The big thing that I hit on, you know, as soon as possible is funding, How are you going to pay for this, right? Because withdrawing from your 401k, withdrawing from your IRA, changing estate plans, changing your cash flow at a time where 
you know, you can borrow for just about anything. You can't borrow for retirement. Right. So how did you fund this in its early stages? Until incredibly recently, okay. all out of cash flow. Okay. I never borrowed. Okay. Um, which may be a mistake, by the way, right? As you're trying to grow a business, you may be able to grow much faster if you do borrow, if you have certain cash flow. And if you're providing a product rather than providing a service, you may need to borrow in order to keep inventories going and in order to pay salaries while your receivables are coming was in. Was it a personal reason that you didn't want to borrow or was it just... I, no, I was didn't it, need to borrow. Okay. Um, I, I really, you know, I hired slowly and I, I hired as... And I'm still hiring as I have revenues to cover those new hires. So as I put on additional products and projects um, and the way that we have decided that we're going to scale this business is um, largely through financial coaching. So we are... Um, we've been delivering a financial coaching program through the pandemic at Her Money, and we are now um, starting to deliver that through financial institutions and employers. Okay. Um, and that makes, because I can be on video, me a little more a little more scalable. So as I have needed to hire for technology, as I've needed to hire additional coaches, I've done that. Once the contracts were signed and once I knew the revenue was coming in. And, and that's, that's me. And I, I did raise a little bit of money last year. I just did a friends and family round in order to um, give myself a little bit of powder, mostly for the technology. But I'm very nervous about it. And as a woman, I feel like I am completely valid in being nervous about it. it. Women, when you look at the statistics on the amount of, of money that women are able to raise to start businesses, it pales in comparison. It's in the single digits compared to the capital that men are able to raise. And when you look at black and brown women, it's even smaller. And so I think counting on that is, is often a mistake. So when we talk about funding, one of the things that I immediately go to, and maybe this was earlier in your process as well, um, there are tax professionals involved, oh, right? Yeah. CPAs, attorneys, <laughs> um, you're kind of rethinking your overall plan. Some people wait too long to get CPAs, to get attorneys involved. They think that, again, I'm a good baker. I'm a good writer. I'm going to go do this. And then all of a sudden, maybe 13 months down the road, they get jammed up because they realize that they weren't making good decisions early on because they didn't have that plan put together. Talk about how and when you started to utilize outside professionals? Before I had a business, okay. right? I think you need a CPA or an accountant before you have a business. I mean, who's going to tell you if you should start an S-corp or a C-corp or an LLC? I wouldn't know that off the top of my head. I asked my accountant. My accountant said, do it this way. I, I call... <laughs> This is a ridiculous story, but I, it was like one day I had to file my taxes very quickly. My accountant said, well, you, you need a company. So I picked up the phone, called the 800 number that he gave me to start a company in Delaware. And um, 
they said, well, what's the name of this company? I, I didn't have a name of this company. So my children's middle names became the name of my company. So my, my <laughs> official, awesome. my first company, the, the official name was Samuel Bennett. And I had a colleague early on who said, well, you can't tell the story about your kids' middle names. We'll tell everybody that Samuel Bennett was a patriot from around the time of Alexander Hamilton, who had played a very instrumental role in and who is this tell- starting you're telling the you to personal do this? finance industry. This was... Um, a guy named Mike Falcon, who is now one of the advisors to her money, is a okay. longtime friend of mine. But he he um, had come out of uh, out of uh, work in at, in the financial services industry and and worked with me for a couple of years at one point trying to grow the company in one of its earlier iterations where we didn't we 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 didn't find our way. Okay, so let's take a step back. There's things that we're supposed to do, quote unquote, right? From the, you know, do it yourself, start your, start your business. There's just the organic, this is what we do and that's a, this is how we do it. Three things maybe that you wished you would have done differently as you started. I want to talk about side hustles um, a little bit later. I want to talk about kind of other tax questions, but from your perspective, kind of share with people what, what you thought were the three big things that you could do differently going forward? I I think if I were doing it again, I would think about the question of scaling sooner. I would think about it as more than just me sooner, um, which would perhaps have led to productization uh, quicker and gotten me there quicker. I would have started an advisory board sooner. I have done that, but it took me a little while. It's been incredibly helpful. And I would have said no more often so that I could say yes to the important things. That's great. We are going to take a quick break. We will be right back. And we are, as Andy said, going to dig into this concept of side hustles. We're going to really get a little bit tactical about the tax considerations that you need to think about if you're digging into your own small business. I'm Jean Chatsky. You're listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. Stay with us. Are you missing opportunities to help grow, protect, and preserve your wealth? Find out. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com to connect with an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner. That's 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. We're back on Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. Gene Chatsky here with Andy Smith. We were talking about side hustles, as I have previously disclosed. I am the queen of the side hustle, very early to side hustles. I, I uh, done a lot of freelance writing in my day, taught SATs. That was definitely a fun one. How about you? Have you ever had a side hustle? Um, I have a forced side hustle. Uh, there was a company that I was working for in the early 2000s. Um, it was a voiceover internet when in one of the early companies and, uh, they came to us in October, uh, October, uh, Halloween, if you can believe it, October 31st and said, we can't pay you. We don't know when we're going to pay you. And I went down the street and, uh, put in an application at a camping goods store. Yeah. I worked at I worked at one when I was in high school and I was in, you know, scouts and did all that. So I basically sold 
hiking boots and tents and crampons and climbing gear um, as we were trying to figure out what that was what that was going to be. So yeah. I, I did my time in a sporting goods store, actually. I, Kelly Mike Sporting Goods, Wheeling, West Virginia. When I was in high school, I can fit a sneaker like nobody's business. <laughs> but we're not alone. 44% of Americans, Andy, they say they have a side gig. That is up 13% since 2020. That's some recent lending tree research. And projections have it that the gig economy, so to speak, is going to nearly triple in the next five years. It's also not an insignificant amount of time that people are putting into their side hustles. It's about 13, 14 hours a week on average. Um, And 13% of people are going above and beyond that. They're putting 30 hours or more into their side hustles. When you when you think about side hustles or when you talk about side hustles with your clients, what do you think most people are actually doing? What are the most popular ones out there? Well, we know what the surveys show, right? So the surveys show um, there's, there's online businesses like blogging, podcasting, online courses. Um, what I hear a lot from, from clients, especially um, into or in the first couple of years of retirement, it's consulting, it's contracting, right? Um, there's e-commerce, you're selling stuff on Amazon, on eBay, um, self-publishing. Sometimes you're doing local services, delivery drivers, you know, some sort of ad hoc uh, sort of work like that. Are these the same sorts of side hustles? And, and I don't even know if it qualifies. After you're in retirement, if you, if you are doing some sort of work, is that a side hustle? Is that just a job? Like, what, what's, the, what's the correct description? And when you talk to your clients who are retired and they're still working, which, by the way, is very appealing to me. I think if I didn't have some sort of work to do, I would be deathly bored. What are they doing? Well, there's a couple of questions in there, right? Um, you know, first of all, I, I'm not sure if it's a side gig, if there's no main gig, uh, you know, for that, but it may have started as a side gig. And so it just continued. So mentally, that's how they think about it. Um, a lot of times when I'm talking with, with clients, we're looking at things from a planning perspective, right? How do you get to retirement? How do you get through retirement? And one of the things that we talk about is what do you want to do? What, what does retirement look like for you? I have some clients who they don't want to do anything, right? And it's not like they want to sit in front of the TV and watch cable news 20 hours a day, but they just don't want to have the responsibility of being somewhere at a particular time. More and more clients, um, they want to do something. They just don't want to do what they're doing right now. Right. And so it's and it's not like they're chained to the desk. It's not like they're yelled at at work all the time. It's just look, you've been there 20, 30, you know, 35 years in some cases, you're ready for a change. And so one of the things that I try to talk to clients about is what do you want this to look like? How do you want your retirement to be? Because you may like doing something. We talked about this earlier. You may love baking. You may love woodworking. You may love insert name of hobby here but it doesn't necessarily translate into some sort of monetizable, um, you know, economic function for you into retirement. It's not a valid income stream that I can build into a, to a cash flow plan. But it might be enough of an income stream to allow you to delay Social Security, 
right? right? I mean, it might be enough to help you make your financial plan come to fruition, I would think, in other ways. And and sometimes I think it's just about staying a little bit busy. I, my my uh, stepbrother and his husband live out in Palm Springs. Um, my stepbrother, David's not retired, but his husband, Renee, is pretty retired. And he drives for Uber because he's got spilkes. I mean, I don't know if you know spilkes. Spilkes is Yiddish for yeah. not able to sit still. And and Renee can sit still, so he uh, he will just pick up a ride and go drive for Uber and talk to some people. There's a lot of people who who can do that. There's a lot of people who it would it would paralyze them to think about you know having to to build that in. I think the important thing that that happens in these conversations is that you just understand the type of person that you are, right? If you have, if you're lucky enough to have multiple forms of mailbox money, right? Social security, um, pension, some sort of other cash flow that's there, cash rent for crops, or, you know, whatever it is, you've got a little bit of leg room. You've got a little bit of, of wiggle room there to do different things. One of the things that I try to do is model different points of cash flow for people. So for example, there's two big levers that you can throw when it comes to retirement planning or cash flow planning. One is how much you want to spend. Mm -hmm. The other is when you want to spend it, right? So it's like a tank. If you throw them both forward (laughs) and you're going 100 miles an hour, you better know where it's going. If you want to retire, you know, immediately and you want to spend a bajillion dollars a month, well, you're just going in circles. So if I can model what different cash flow pieces look like for people, right? Social security, when's an optimal time to take that? Is it 65? Is it full retirement age? Is it 70 because you have this part-time job? I think people need to quantify what their cash flow plans look like. So you may have the best hobby. You may have the best ability to do whatever it is that you want to do. But if you don't know how the economics work for your particular situation, you may be in a situation where you have to make some pretty difficult working decisions at a completely inopportune time. We talked about the idea of a hobby, of that thing that you love to do. Have you had the experience of seeing people take a hobby and turn it into a business? Um, it, I have. Uh, they are very lucky um, for that. Uh, a lot of what a lot of what I see, um, like I said earlier, was more contracting, consulting. So you may work at a particular um, you know job. You want to step away. They realize that they need you, so they're going to hire you back, but just not pay you benefits and insurance, right? So you love it because it's still something to do. You know it. You get insurance from. Medicare, or you have your your spouse's insurance and everything else. Um, I can probably count on one hand the number of people who were lucky enough to take something that they really liked to do and monetize it to the extent that it actually means something. Right? That you know, there's there's a difference between selling a couple of pieces to family and friends because they either really like it or they feel sorry for you, and <laughs> you know, actually doing something, convincing a stranger to part with his or her hard-earned money to buy something that you made with your own hands. Yeah. Yeah. Etsy is a difficult road, I think, for people. And, and you know, it's nice if it's a supplemental amount of income, but if it's something that you're truly counting on, that that's where it, that's where it gets difficult. That's where it gets uh, cumbersome. And sometimes I think you have to wonder, all right, is this side gig even worth doing? 
is this something that uh, it, that's even even worth my time? Years ago, I wrote a story for Forbes magazine about the five things that you needed to do in order to have a successful side gig. And first item on my list, which I think I said before, was just don't quit your day job. Like don't right. don't bank on this being your full-time gig until you have a number of proof points, preferably through a couple of economic cycles that that this is going to be able to carry you forward. Um, but then it, we got into some of the things that that we talked about uh, when we talked about market research that you you really need to understand this as a business. You need to understand it as a as a an enterprise rather than um, a lemonade stand, right? I, I mean, when you think about a kid in a lemonade stand, they think they're making so much money because what are they doing? They're going into the pantry, they're getting your lemons, they're your getting your sugar, they're getting nothing. your water and yeah. your sign, and yeah. they're putting it outside and it's costing you nothing, them nothing, and they think they made all this money. And in fact, if you deducted their actual costs, they'd be underwater. Right. And I, and I think that's what I try to impart upon clients as well. Right. So when we when we're talking about retirement flow or retirement income flow or cash flow plans or even pre retirement, how to make this work, you have to understand what those different levers do. And if you're banking on one particular piece of income for this magical side hustle or this magical job that you think that you can run on the side and you have to have that to make that work and it doesn't work again, you're having to make some pretty difficult decisions in retirement. One of the complicating factors is taxes. Absolutely. And and I know that when your clients talk to you about starting these businesses, you immediately bring up the idea that taxes are a big part of this, especially if you've got a side job and a regular job, it gets really, really complicated. We've got Rich Lahijani, uh, EFE's Director of Tax Planning with us. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jean. Pleasure to be here. Well, we're really glad that you're here because we have questions. Andy specifically has questions. I know, I know about this. So, I mean, what are the considerations, Andy, for somebody in talking to somebody like Rich? Um, one of the things that, so I'll get a lot of questions. And one of the first things I try to do is you need to enlist the help of a tax professional. You need to get a CPA involved. So, Rich, some of the early questions that I get in, in almost every conversation with clients about these sorts of, of side hustles, these kind of, you know, building up different income plans, they want to know, how should I set up the business? Do I, do I do this separately? Do I do this through my own social security number? What, what do people need to keep in mind tax-wise as they're creating this different entity now that's going to be bringing in income? Sure. I mean, a few things they should be uh, aware of. Just from a liability perspective, um, depending upon what they're doing, we would advocate for a liability shield, such as either an LLC or a corporation. Um, that, that would be the first thing for sure. 
Do both of those actually give you the same protection? I mean, I, I think there for a lot of people, they don't necessarily understand the difference. Uh, you know, what's the difference between an S Corp and a C Corp and an LLC? Can you just spell it out for us? Sure, absolutely. With a C Corporation, you know, you're typically taxed as double taxation with a C Corporation. And that's typically for your larger multinational companies out there. Um, with an S Corporation, it's specifically for small businesses. And LLCs, as well, they both afford the same liability protection. Uh, it's just a matter of additional paperwork that may have to be filed with an S corporation, whereas in an LLC, you may not have as many payroll or other documents you have to file with them. So if you're one of those 80% of people who think this business is really just going to be me, maybe me and my spouse, are you saying that an LLC is generally the way to go? Typically, if if it's a side hustle, uh, the single-member LLC would be typically the way to go uh, unless the business is really going to be a full-time business taking off, in which case the other business entities might be a better choice. Rich, one of the early questions that people have almost before the, hey, what do you think about me having this job? Um, people want to know what they can deduct. People want to know what they can run through this company, what they need to, to avoid doing. Are there some rules of thumb? Are there some guidelines that people need to have in mind when it comes to what to deduct versus what to, you know, just just keep off the uh, keep off the books? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, generally speaking, we're looking for ordinary, necessary, and reasonable expenses um, in order for it to be deductible. Uh, so, you know. It, you have a phone that you use for the business, you have internet that you use for the business. Uh, any cost that is associated with running that business is generally acceptable. Um, there are other benefits uh, for self-employed folks as well. Home office deduction comes to mind, uh, whereas otherwise an employee would not be allowed to deduct a home office. So definitely a lot of additional deductions for self-employed as opposed to your typical W-2 employee. Rich, tackle the flip side. What can't you deduct? I can't tell you the number of people that that say, oh my God, you're so lucky. You can deduct all your clothes. Newsflash, I can deduct none of my clothes. That is like, that is not a deductible expense. That is not kosher. So what, what can't you deduct? I would stay away from anything that is... Uh, typically would be used in it every day. So for example, you know, if the clothes that you're wearing could also be used outside of your job as well. So if it's not really directly related to the business and it could be used for other purposes outside the business, you typically try to stay away from those things. And that's where the home office deduction gets tricky, Andy. It's, it's if you've got space that is not completely dedicated to that small business, you can't be deducting it. And that was, that's kind of a lead into my next question. What are some mistakes that many people make when they start doing this on their own? Have you seen some trends? Have you seen some regular things that people are just making some bonehead moves on? Sure, absolutely. Well, I could tell you, you know, if your basement is where your children play and then at night it turns into an office, that's not going to work, right? Like to Gene's point, it's got to be exclusively for the business. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, this is a little bit different now, right? Because you're self-employed, be ready to set aside anywhere from 25 to 40% of the side uh, 
gig income for taxes. Whereas before, as a W-2, you know, you're used to your employer withholding federal taxes, social security taxes, and Medicare taxes. And now you're self-employed and you say to yourself, oh, I have to come up with all this tax towards the end of the year. It could be an issue. A lot of people think that they can go it alone. Uh, you know, just because you can um, do something or you think about something or somebody builds you up, they, they, they underappreciate the value of having outside professionals, financial planners, attorneys, CPAs. If you are going in this alone, what is a point where most people start to need to get help, in your opinion? I would start right away. Uh, get the help right away. You're ahead of the game at that point. Uh, don't wait for things to happen uh, then call somebody. It's always, if you bring the professionals on early on, they could guide you, they could uh, mentor you in the right direction, as opposed to, you know, you don't want to fix your car after it's broken at that point. You want to get it before. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Just a couple of other tactical questions, Rich. When do you need to start making any estimated tax payments for this business? And Talk about the separation of church and state, right? Do, when do you need a separate business account, a separate checking, separate savings, ha, you know, even a separate bank? I would typically advocate to right away, you have a separate bank account, you have a debit card exclusively, a checking account exclusively for the business. Uh, you have your books and records straight. Therefore, when you're coming for tax season, you're organized, you're ready to go, and your CPA will love you for that. And and as far as those estimated tax payments, who has to worry about that? So generally, you would say if you expect to owe $1,000 or more in taxes after you subtract any federal withholding, then you would be generally subject to that um, estimated taxes. And keep in mind, this is federal taxes, but it's a good point to know that depending upon the state that you live in, you may also be obligated to make state estimated payments as well. So, Rich, this is maybe more of an ethical question than anything else, but do you think that you should be informing your current employer that you've got this side hustle going? I, I, have, an, I have a very strong opinion about this one, and I'll share it, but let me hear your answer first. I think it's the best practice to do, uh, especially, you know, you're, play, you're working at another uh, employer. I, I would advocate to do it. I, I think absolutely. There's there is no downside in in telling your employer. In fact, your employer may be able to help you, may be able to hire you. My policy has always been: look, you, because a lot of writers and I hire writers at my company, her money. A lot of writers freelance, right? And that's how we've always earned extra money. You write a book; that's a side hustle. But don't try to hide it from me. Right. Tell me what you're doing. And, and as long as it's non-competitive, I'm not I'm not going to have an issue. Rich, thank you so much. Anything else in terms of missteps that you see people making that we just want to make sure our listeners are not falling afoul of? Just make sure that you separate your business and the pleasure. Do not commingle the funds. Do not, you know, take the same credit card that you're using for personal and for business. That could create a whole host of issues. So please separate them. You get yourself organized and you'll be great, ready to go for tax season. Amazing. Rich, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And Andy, we are out of time. We are. It has been so much fun doing this with you today. Thank you. It's been great. I just want to throw it out there for all of our listeners, and maybe you could emphasize this for me. You know, we would love to help you on the air. 
Um, we'd love to be able to dig into your questions, open up your finances, let Andy dig into them and see what's going on. If you have a question, visit everydaywealth.com, submit it together with Andy or one of his colleagues. We'll talk through potential solutions that would be personal to you. And the reason I like this idea so much is because I watch how you talk to me and you have a million follow-ups. And when you get a question in writing, it's just not the same as being able to talk to somebody. The, uh, and I think that's what we've lost over the last couple of years. People sometimes hide behind emails. Sometimes people hide behind text. There is, you know, true merit in being able to talk with and see and kind of bounce things off of people. So a lot of the information that you've heard today, a lot of the things that you've you've kind of listened to, you're not alone, right? You have questions. You want to figure out how this, you know, puts everything together into your own plan, into your own, you know, living situation. It's okay to reach out and get some help. Absolutely. So drop us a line at everydaywealth.com. And if you want to catch a show that you might have missed, you can always listen to the podcast. It's often that the podcast will have some extra content that we are not able to air on the radio due to time. You can download our podcast at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. We love feedback. So when you have something you want to tell us about the show, take a moment, leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, we still want to know it. And take a second and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks, Andy. It's 2023, and every new year brings with it new opportunities. It's true for us here at Everyday Wealth as well. It's a new year, a fresh slate, and we're in a great position to challenge ourselves by asking, what's next? How do we push the conversations we have on everyday wealth even further? How do we go deeper? In that spirit, starting in mid-February, Everyday Wealth will be transitioning to a podcast-only format. We will no longer be a weekly radio show. And while our format may change, our mission has not. We are dedicated to helping people grow and protect their wealth. We continue to sit at the intersection of life and money and focus on those moments that matter most for your personal economy. We'll invite experts and authors to the conversation for fresh perspectives, and we'll continue to answer your questions because first and foremost, we know finance is very personal. So be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And if you're new to podcasting, just visit everydaywealth.com. All of our episodes are available there as well.